Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. I'm really excited today uh, because we're doing something quite niche but very, very interesting. Lizzie Evans is a history PhD at University College London looking at gender and sexuality in the modern United States. But today we're going to be talking about something really fascinating and that's the NYPD, specifically police women's undercover investigations of abortion in the first 20 years of the 20th, 20th century. Hi Lizzie. Hi, hey there. How is lockdown? Um, lockdown's good. It's it's actually been eventful. I moved house yesterday. Um, oh wow! <laughs> yeah, it was it was government approved. I lived with an NHS worker, so we were permitted because uh, they were being redeployed. But yes, now now I'm in an office and everything is calm. So I'm good now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> today, uh, yesterday was a bit fretful. Then. Yeah, yesterday was a different story, but today. <laughs> Well, let's just focus on your research then and give you some time off. Um, tell us a little bit about how you got onto this subject and what source material it was that suddenly appeared that drove you forward on this topic. Yeah, so I think growing up as a woman, I was always, there was a moment where you became aware that the birth control and the contraception that you might have had available to you wasn't available to every woman or every girl across the globe. Um, and so this was a bit of like a eureka moment for me. Um, and I thought, well, some of the answers to why those differences occur might be found by looking to the past. Um, and I was on one of these quests to find answers to that, that question. Um, and it led me to an archive in New York City. Um, now, this archive had just made available some 100-year-old prosecutions, which were previously, and historians, you might want to cover your ears right now, but rotting in a basement. <gasps> um, no. I know. What? <laughs> yeah. And th- things get a bit crusty either end of the chronological spectrum of these records. So, um, yeah. Um, and so they made these available, and I went along knowing that they had some abortion prosecutions there. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe these records might give me some information about what type of woman sought an abortion 100 years ago um, and what type of woman got caught for doing that. Um, But when I got there, I noticed that the same names kept popping up and you might expect the same abortionist names to keep appearing as they were arrested and released and arrested. Um, But actually it was the supposedly pregnant woman's name that kept popping up. Um, And I was like, that's a bit weird. because firstly that someone would seek that number of abortions but also that they kept getting caught I was like surely after a point you would you'd change tactic right yeah. um 
Yeah, but when I looked a bit more closely, it transpired that these were actually police women's names um, and that they were the ones who were approaching abortionists and saying that they were pregnant. Um, and so at that point, I did what I think any good historian would do. Um, and I went away and I frantically Googled um, to find out, one, whether this was real um, and two, whether anyone else had written about it. Uh, and I think I got the answer that you want for both of those questions. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're ever in doubt, do a Google. Yeah, many tabs were opened in the course of this research. <laughs> <laughs> so talk to us about the advent of female officers in the NYPD. What is the history behind it? Yeah, so women entered the NYPD in the 1890s um, and they started off as matrons in station houses. Um, they performed gendered tasks there, uh, caring for the station house environment, and also they had special responsibility for female prisoners there. Um, the work they did was pretty laborious. They worked 12-hour shifts overnight or during the day. They were responsible for drunk women, searching the bodies of dead women, um, for rough sleepers and that sort of thing. So it's not the kind of typical middle-class Victorian work that we think of. Um, for kind of women in, in government at this time. Um, but eventually, ambitious matrons started, they started to seek more tasks for themselves and they started to get involved in the investigations that their male colleagues were doing. Um, and they found that sometimes uh, a woman detained in the precinct was more willing to talk to, a, to another woman than they were to the police officers. Um, but apparently, they, sometimes they weren't too big a fan of the policewoman being there. And Mary Sullivan, who was an early policewoman and who wrote an autobiography, uh, she says that uh, one female prisoner really hated that she was interviewing her because the prisoner used to play a certain role with the male detectives. But apparently, Mary Sullivan saw right through that. Um, and so, in, so her work, you, you know, it made, it changed the dynamics of like, investigation. Um. I really want to know um, one the background to undercover surveillance and women of the NYPD. They were using it um, in the beginning for all sorts of crimes, weren't they? Not only um, abortion stuff. Yeah, so there were two real reasons that police women started going undercover. The first one was really an extension of that station house role. So they could go undercover to gain information from other women. Mary Sullivan used to go to a hair salon that was frequented by gangsters' wives. Um, and so she used to, while she was having her hair curled, she used to listen to what everyone was saying to each other and then she could report on that. Um, and similarly, Isabella Goodwin, who later became the first female detective in America, um, she earned her promotion on a 1912 case known as the taxi cab robbery. Um, and in these, and, and in this robbery, there'd been tens of thousands of dollars stolen, but the NYPD had no leads. They were looking for a suspect, Eddie the Boob Kinsman, but they couldn't find Eddie the Boob. But they did know where his girlfriend, Swede Annie, was. Um, she was in a, a female, uh, a female hostel. Um, and so what they did was they asked matron Isabella Goodwin, well, could you go and could you pose as a maid in order to surveil Swede Annie? Um, and so Isabella Goodwin put on a shabby suit. She put on her old shoes um, and she went to work as a maid. She would serve three meals a day. She'd scrub the floors. Um, and all the while she was listening through the keyhole to see if she could get a clue as to this, to this taxi robbery case. 
Um, and one day she heard Sweet Annie showing off a new suit that she'd bought um, or that her boyfriend had bought for her. And she was like, hmm, where did you get that new suit from? And apparently it was in upstate New York. And because of that piece of information, they therefore found the Eddie the Boob who had stolen all this money. And because of her, her key contribution, Isabella Goodwin became the first detective. Um, and then eventually they started using police women for other types of undercover investigations where the police woman would, woman would actually pose as the victim of a crime. Um, there were some crimes where people didn't want to come forward to testify in trials. Uh, for instance, con men sometimes used to target widows. Um, I think of this like the phishing emails that we get today. And mm. if you fall victim to one of them, you might not want to come forward because it might be embarrassing, that sort of thing. Um, yeah. And so in that case, the policewoman could go pose as the widow, get the evidence necessary, um, which would lead to the arrest. So these are the kinds of cases that you're talking about, isn't it? I mean, one that men can't actually infiltrate. So what were the laws concerning abortion at the time in New York City? So I think the headline is that abortion has not always been illegal in the US. I think there's this idea that that's some sort of moral absolute that was the case throughout history until 1973 and Roe v. Wade and it all changed. Um, but actually, for most of American history, abortion was legal. Um, and rather, it was made illegal between 1850 and 1890 as a result of campaigns primarily by doctors, but also by social purity campaigners. Um, and so they, they wanted to make abortion illegal for a number of reasons. Uh, one of them was that doctors were trying to professionalise. They were trying to claim that they had the authority to determine whether a pregnancy should continue, whether it was right for pregnancy to continue, whereas previously that kind of authority had laid with the mother. Um, there was also anxiety because the birth rate, particularly amongst white Protestant Americans, was dropping. Um, meanwhile, there were high immigration rates, particularly from Eastern and Southern Europe. So that was a large source of anxiety that they thought, well, if we criminalize abortion, that will change that, They'll, the birth rate will increase. Um, and so state by state, abortion was made illegal um, until by 1890, um, you, it you could be prosecuted for practicing an abortion. And in theory, you could also be prosecuted for seeking one. But that was much less common. Mainly they targeted people who provided abortion services. Um, so talking about the NYPD female officers, they are really creative about finding instances of illegal abortion, aren't they? And, and how they weed people out. Definitely creative in a kind of deeply disturbing way. Um, so although abortion was illegal, although they had these laws on the statute books, it's pretty hard to police because um, spontaneous miscarriage and induced miscarriage medically are pretty similar. Um, abortion often takes place in private spaces, in female spaces. Um, and also legally, it's hard to prosecute because most witnesses are complicit in some way in the, in the procurement of an abortion and therefore they don't really want to come forward. Um, so around 1913, the NYPD has the bright idea, well, why don't we put our new innovation, the policewoman, and why don't we deploy her in service of criminalizing abortion? And so what happens is the policewomen work in pairs, uh, often a more senior woman. So for instance, Isabella Goodwin, the first female detective, she, she was one woman who worked in these investigations. 
And she often worked with another woman who had um, foreign language skills. So in this case, she worked with a Delft priest whose parents were German. So she was fluent in German. Um, and so they would approach uh, immigrant midwives. They would pose as women's pregnant women who needed an abortion. They would tell stories of reproductive vulnerability, of poverty, of children that they had and who they couldn't care for. Um, sometimes they wore black to pose as widows. Um, and they were trying, they used their foreign language skills to try and build community with the midwife to, to convince her that they really were in need of her services. Um, but in the eyes of the law, simply agreeing to perform an abortion wasn't enough. And in fact, the evidentiary bar of intent depended upon the insertion of instruments um, into the policewoman's person. And so after they'd, um, after they'd talked to the midwife and negotiated a price for her services, Isabella Goodwin would lie on a couch or on a table. She would lift her knees up um, and she would feel the midwife place hands or um, instruments into her vagina. Um, and that was, the, that was the gotcha moment. And at that point, the second policewoman would run to the window. Um, and I'm not exaggerating. She would hold a handkerchief to her face. Um, and the two cops outside would see this as a signal, run inside and arrest the midwife. Wow, I've got to say, it's clever, it's really clever, but really daunting at the same time. Yeah, it is, which leads, I mean, this next question, I think, just sums it up, doesn't it, Alina? It does, because, I mean, there is no room to be shy about prosecuting abortion as a crime, is there? I mean, what sorts of things are these officers exposed to in the courtroom? Yeah, so this is the dynamic that really fascinates me. So on the one hand, the policewomen are going undercover and they're, arresting other women but at the same time they're in a really kind of vulnerable position within the NYPD so they have to go into courtrooms where there are all male lawyers all male juries and all male judiciary and they're asked in in kind of cringing detail about well just just how did you know that the midwife put her finger inside you? Um, just how do you know that? Did you feel that? And they keep going round and round and round. And you, when I was reading these transcripts, I was like, mm, do you think they're asking the policemen about their genitals at any point during the investigations that they do? Um, exactly. And they also, they, and, and they also ask, um, they also ask the policewoman like, oh, were you married? Um, how many children do you have? And again, they're asking a professional who's supposedly, you know, on their team, part of the law enforcement in the city, they're asking them all these kind of intimate details. Um, and, and I must say, I should say here that the midwives aren't taking this lying down. Um, they're protesting the policewoman's conduct. They're saying, well, yes, you may have spoken German, but I speak Yiddish or I only speak Hungarian. So I didn't really understand what, what you were saying. Um, they're also kind of exploiting the fact that policewomen are marginal in uh, in the policing world and one of them said well I didn't think that you were pregnant the reason I gave you a pelvic exam was because I thought you had syphilis um which I think is a massive burn like at the time mm. yeah and it's like implying that they're dirty as well isn't it yeah exactly um Ellen O'Grady just doesn't stand for this kind of intrusion, though, does she, while they're doing their work? Who was she and what did she do to change? Ready to pop the question? 
The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Change it. Yeah, so in 1918, there's a new mayor in New York City and he thinks, well, we've just had suffrage. Um, police women seem to be doing quite a good job uh, for the department. So why don't we introduce a female police commissioner, a female deputy police commissioner? And so he appoints Eleanor Grady. She comes in, she looks around and she's like, what on earth are you doing, basically? Um, and so she collects the police women who used to be doing these abortion investigations to her own personal squad. Um, and she's like, no more. We will not be doing any more pelvic exams, police women. This, this, is not, this does not fly under, under my purview. Do you know what? I really wish people could see my expression because <laughs> it is. You know, I'm just sitting here muting myself and kind of yelling at the same time because I don't want to interrupt you while I'm sitting there going, "Sorry, what? I, what kind of job would it be like? Yeah, so you're going to make New York a safer place, um, but it's going to involve the intrusion of your vagina um, on a frequent basis and just public, yeah." <laughs> Wow. Physically, and then you'll have to relive it in front of an entire courtroom. Just wow. Um, (laughs) I'm sorry. This is just just awful listening to this. Can you imagine me in the archive then? I'm reading this and I'm like, sorry, what? (laughs) (laughs) Um, This doesn't stop undercover investigations, though, does it? It alters them. Yeah. So. I would say if you're feeling some kind of sympathy for the police women, what I'm going to say next might change that. So whilst they weren't, they were no longer comfortable putting their own bodies kind of on the line, they were more than happy to put the bodies of more vulnerable women on the line. And so under O'Grady, what they start doing is um, approaching young women who are kind of known to them through their policing activities and effectively putting pressure on them to do the undercover work that they were previously doing. So in one instance, they um, approached a pregnant woman, Erica Monson, um, who was a Finnish uh, immigrant, and she worked as a chambermaid in a hospital. And they basically put a lot, they coerced her into going, uh, going and approaching a midwife, submitting to pelvic exams, um, and then they pursued a prosecution based on her evidence. Um, and, and the prosecution went on for two years, and it's really, it's really uncomfortable to read. She's in the courtroom and she's saying, well, I didn't want to do this. Um, I haven't been able to get another job. I lost my, uh, my employment. Um, and all the while she's kind of feeling the detective's eyes upon her. Um, so it's, it's just that really kind of uncomfortable dynamic about how 
the police women weren't happy to do that themselves anymore, but they were more than happy to continue criminalizing abortion, continue to target these midwives. Um, yeah. There is clearly a level of exploitation in here so far as these women's bodies are concerned. Yes. Yeah, so definitely police women's bodies are exploited in ways that we don't that their male colleagues just wouldn't have been. But at the same time, this was the main means by which police women promoted in the institution of the NYPD. Um, it led to promotion from matron to detective, salary increases, um, honor roll medals. They also appeared in countless newspaper he headlines because of this work. So it's it's really kind of a question of like compromises in pursuing professional advance. Um, in terms of people committing these abortion crimes, for all the hard work that these women are doing and for all of the um, efforts of these women that are exploited to help them, um, there's marginalisation, isn't there, with respect to the perpetrators of illegal abortions. Um, some are clearly caught and prosecuted but it means that other perpetrators benefit from the way they're approaching this don't they yeah so i think the first thing to say is that the midwives who the nypd are prosecuting aren't dangerous practitioners they're not those who are causing women harm or causing their deaths or anything rather the nypd and the police women by posing undercover are actually targeting I guess what we would call like safe practitioners of abortion they're not the reason the motivations for prosecuting midwives aren't because they're harming women it's much more about uh, suspicion of midwives suspicion of foreign customs of knowledge and networks that are outside the control of the NYPD um, so they're not going and prosecuting the rich white doctors on the Upper West Side but they're specifically interested in criminalising um, immigrant women, working class women and their clients. Um, I have to try and make some reference here to the fact that there are parallels with laws. Abortion is such a touchy issue still in the US. For those that don't know in Britain, it's very much mm. state by state. It's not federally overseen. Um, and Alabama tell us what Alabama have done lately because <laughs> it just blows my mind in 2020 that we're here yeah so basically the decade since Roe v Wade in 1973 which effectively made abortion legal um it, what it's been characterized by is this slow creep of new kind of insidious forms of abortion surveillance and Alabama um, was one such case last year where they're enacting laws at a state level to criminalize abortion even though technically um, it's legal. Um, another case that I found really troubling from last year was under Trump's Office of Refugee Resettlement um, they tried to block um, underage girls from seeking abortions and they did so by creating a spreadsheet that contained all sorts of really troubling information about when their last period was, um, whether the pregnancy was a result of consensual sex or rape. Um, and this was all information that the government was storing. So it's this really, really disturbing level of surveillance. And I, I think that to my mind does have parallels with what the police women were doing it's that it's that type of surveillance that really gets the the hairs on your neck standing up mm. 
Hell yeah, it does. It's quite disturbing, really. I mean, listening to all of this and hearing what happened to the women and, but literally, uh, it's made me cringe. It has really, really mm. made me cringe. I mean, you're yeah. right when you say that you kind of like, I completely take for granted my right to choose. I'm not having anyone mm-hmm. tell me what I can and can't do with my body. Um, yeah, I, and I, I think will not that, have it. Yeah, and I think that the result of the current wave of laws, but also under criminalization a hundred years ago, is that it mainly affects the most vulnerable in society, right? Mm. Um, it affects women who are undocumented, women without financial resources, without family support, young women um, in the US, disproportionately women of color, who cut, if, if the abortion clinic is closed in their state, they can't just take days off work and travel to another state in order to access that. Whereas obviously more affluent women could. And and that's just what was happening a hundred years ago. The police weren't going after the the rich doctors who served Manhattan's elite. They were going after um, the midwives who served at the working class immigrant communities in the city. I just can't believe that in 2020, anywhere, uh, let alone America, Mm. which is supposed to be leader of the free world, in any way, shape or form, is moving back to a point where you shame a woman for wanting to make a choice about her own body. Yeah, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) I was just letting that hang. I was like, yeah, yeah." you know, when you stare off into the distance and you're like, oh. I know. But it's unfortunately, it's still happening around the world, uh, Mm. even in Europe. Mm-hmm. where women don't have a free choice unfortunately it's mind-blowing in the 21st century mm. um i'm not getting into the religious arguments for it i just i think that every woman has a right to be master of her own body um and religion doesn't well, this, even come into it well this is why i think the historical argument has such power here because if you look at the way in which abortion was criminalized in the u.s it lit- before, prior to 1850, it was legal and the whole understanding of what pregnancy meant and what abortion meant was totally different. So there was this idea that uh, before a pregnant woman felt the fetus move, then to end the pregnancy was just the same as restoring a period, restoring menstruation. Um, and so that was around like four months uh, into the pregnancy. So the authority lay with women to decide whether the pregnancy was viable. Um, whereas from 1850 to 1890, you have these professions saying, actually, no, that's not the case anymore. And we are deciding that um, pregnancy and viability of a fetus begins uh, from the moment of conception. So you see that's, how this knowledge You see is, like, the hypocrisy of it, though, as well. Yeah. Because exactly in that period, you have the Prince of Wales, a future Edward VII, uh, a woman that is, is probably, if she did end up having the baby, it's the most likely candidate for one of Edward VII bastards that you will ever find. Uh, there's no record of whether... Um, she had the baby or it was born and died or stillborn or it was given away um but one of the the possibilities is um, because she was far along when he found out that one of the possibilities is is that this woman was pressured into a dangerous late abortion mm. and <laughs> so it just seems to is that you are definitely right when you say it's a subject that has ended up marginalizing um certain parts of society we all, you're currently working on a book now, and we want to know, what are you examining for this? Yeah, so I'm, what I'm really interested in is that kind of uncomfortable dynamic between female professionals 
and those who they're they're regulating. So between the policewoman and the uh, working class immigrant midwife, for example. Um, and I think I'm looking, I'm tracing this dynamic through women doctors um, and their patients through their sex education campaigns of World War One and the way in which they tried to shape um, other women's sexuality to determine what was okay and what was immoral, that sort of thing. Um, and I'm just, that dynamic just fascinates me because I think as feminists, we like to think when women get power, things get better for other women. They lift as they rise. But that's really not what was happening 100 years ago. And it was much more, it was much more gritty than that. And there were compromises. Um, there were negative effects of some women getting professional power. Um, and I'm just, I just, in the book, I'm following that dynamic throughout US history. That's I want to know what that spans. I mean, what, what, how far does your research span in, in the time frame? Mm -hmm. So it begins um, looking at the criminalisation process that I just outlined. Um, and it looks particularly at what women doctors were saying about this. Because when I started, I hoped that women doctors were saying, no, 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 we shouldn't be passing all these laws. We should be protecting women's access to abortion. But actually, that wasn't the case. And a lot of the time, they were even stronger on the anti-abortion rhetoric because they were competing against midwives for patients, against, uh, for authority over childbirth and that sort of thing. So in many ways, they had even more invested in criminalising abortion and in driving midwives from the medical marketplace. So it starts there. We go through World War I and anti-venereal disease campaigns, anti-prostitution campaigns. Um, we travel through police women's undercover work. Um, there's a bit about female fingerprint experts. Um, and then we, we come out around World War II. Um, yeah, so that's the, that's the span of the book. Um, I just have to, with the World War I anti-venereal <laughs> disease uh, campaigning, I just say George V is famous for the uh, non-dramatic nature of his diary. And there's a brilliant one for when he went to see uh, a load of guys in a VD hospital. And it just says, went to venereal disease hospital. Poor fellows. <laughs> That's about as expressive <laughs> as he gets in his diary. I love it. <laughs> Yeah, I was just going to say these um, women doctors were putting little slips saying like venereal disease is bad, syphilis will ruin your life. And they were like putting it in working women's pay slips. And I just imagine them like opening, oh, I've got my paycheck for the month. And then drawing out this card about how awful syphilis is and just being like, mm, okay. Elizabeth, that was absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on and telling us about women uh, in the NYPD. I mean, some of the stuff was just, absolutely spine chilling listening to it about how women were exposed in the courtroom how they actually had to gain their evidence where they were literally being their bodies being invaded and basically bringing us a comparison of what it looks like today so thank you so much for joining us thank you for having me it's been great thanks Join us later when we will be learning all about the early history of the CIA with Tim Weiner. We will also be hearing from Peter Lyon about one GI and his journey in World War II to Europe. Until then, don't forget that you can subscribe to History Hack for as little as a dollar a month via our patron system on our website at www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis, which we would dearly love to do, and it is much appreciated. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders.
Indeed, the regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.